Charles Spurgeon was, of course, the great uh, Baptist pastor in the 19th century. And he, he said the following. He said, the, the contemplation of God, thinking about God, is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. It's so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can consider. In them, we can feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I'm wise, and we learn things. When we come to this master science, that is, thinking about God and trying to take him in to our minds, we turn away with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as the devout, earnest, continued investigation of this great subject of the deity. I'm also humbled because I forgot to tell the children they can head back for uh, children's church, uh, four years old through kindergarten, if you haven't done so already. But the, the reason I wanted to read that to you is because what we're trying to do this month and next month is expand your minds and, and, and humble them as well by, by really thinking about God in his greatness. What is God like? And so we're, we're examining the, these excellencies of our magnificent God. And last week, we, or a couple weeks ago, we've seen that he was incomprehensible, meaning that no one can fully take in who God is in his essence that we can't wrap our heads around and understand him uh, fully. We, we can know him, and we can know about him to the degree that he's revealed himself to us, which he's done, and we, we have that in the, in the scriptures. But you'll never fully know God because of his infinity and that he stands outside of time and space. The last week we saw that he's self-sufficient. We said he, he's a God of aseity, uh, which means he stands on his own. Nothing created him. Nothing adds to him. Nothing contributes to him. Uh, he utterly originates everything with himself. Uh, and so all creation, everything that is created, all created beings like us, are by definition, therefore, 100% dependent on him. He's independent, and we are dependent. This morning, we're going to move, actually cover, talked about two attributes, and they're, they're real tightly connected. Uh, one is, and they're, and they're tied to his aseity that we talked about last week, his self-sufficiency. The first is that God is simple, and the second is that God is immutable. We'll unpack those in a second. I'm just going to read to you one verse this morning, known to the Jews as the Shema. Shema meant, comes from the word hear, hear this word. Uh, so hear, hear the Lord uh, as we hear his word this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Very good translated. Yahweh is God. Our God, Yahweh, is one. Let's pray. Father, as we again come to contemplate you, uh, we, we'll, we'll never fully wrap our minds around who you are in your infinitude because we are creatures. We are finite. But you've revealed yourself to us. And you want us to grasp that we can grasp. So although we cannot comprehend you, we pray that your spirit would enable us to apprehend you. 
Give us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and, and then hearts uh, that uh, delight, hearts that are uh, elevated, minds that are expanded uh, because we've seen you. And it moves us into not only further worship as we're here, but it spills over uh, into our lives, into our day tomorrow and throughout the rest of this week uh, so that you would get glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So your great God is simple. What do I mean by simple? You may have thought you misheard me because after all, a couple weeks ago, we said God is incomprehensible. And so if he's incomprehensible, that would kind of make him complex and complicated. And, and so how can we say he's incomprehensible, but he's simple? If he's simple, he ought to be comprehensible, right? Well, theologically, the, the, what, what they mean to say that God is simple is to say that he, he's not a composite. That is, he's not made up of separate parts, uh, that, are, that have been put together, you can say, on, on the, like on the negative side. He's not made up of parts, that he's piece, not pieced together. And interestingly, the doctrine of, of divine simplicity goes way, way back. I mean, back to the church fathers, Irenaeus, Irenaeus who was in the second century. So we're talking the very early part of the church uh, taught about this, and I'll, I'll quote from him later, Augustine of course, in the 5th century, and uh, Anselm in the 11th century, and Aquinas in the 12th century. It's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, as, as we'll see in a little bit. So this is nothing new. I've got to admit, it was new to me. I was embarrassed, thinking, oh, I must have like, missed that class, or been, still been asleep that class. I, I used to go, I, I worked a shift at 4 a.m. at UPS before I headed into class, so sometimes I missed a few things. Uh, <laughs> studying my classes. But last Thursday, uh, I had a computer tech who came uh, because last month, apparently, I think it's while, while we were away, I had a t really tiny little pebble or something that got between my laptop and the screen. And I, I realized one day I was looking and there's this little spiderweb crack in the bottom of the glass right by where the hinge was. And at first I thought, well, I was a knucklehead. It's tough luck. And then I, it's, it's a touch screen screen and I realized it wasn't touching. I thought, well, that's my own fault. I deserve that. And then the last couple of weeks, I was noticing it started flickering and that, that put the fear of God into me. Uh, and in fact, in fact, last, last week, I may even have mentioned it last Sunday, I was on Thursday, I was over at Regent and I kind of typed the first full draft of my sermon and it started flickering. I thought, I better get back to my office and print this thing out because even though my, I backload up to the cloud that's once a day and if I miss it I may lose all my work I just did so in, in a rare moment of lucidity I had actually bought the warranty which I never do and so I anyway I contacted Lenovo and they uh, you know told them what happened and so they pretty quickly mailed a screen to the tech I thought it was going to take about a week it just took about two days and he called me and he came by the church and about 20 minutes replaced the you know the glass screen on my, on my laptop now you may wonder, why do I tell that? See, my laptop is made of parts. I mean, you think of a laptop as one whole, you know, it's a laptop. But it's, it's made up of different parts, right? He took off a part when a part was damaged and needed to be replaced, he replaced it. God is not made of parts. Okay, so there's, there's no attribute of, his, attribute of his that ever needs to be improved or changed or removed. And they're all... Interlocked. I mean, before, before my laptop existed, it had par there were parts existed before there was a laptop. And some composer put them together. It's probably more a te technician, but put, you know, put all the pieces together, 
to form the laptop. Well, if God was made of parts, then that would mean that there would need to be some being that was prior to him and greater than him to put those parts together to form who God is, right? So he, he's not separate parts that are, that are put together. He's, there's, there's no higher knowledge or higher, higher being than him. The Westminster Confession of Faith begins in the second chapter where it talks about God. It says, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, and then it says, without body, parts, or passion, immutable, we're going to talk about that in a second, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most high, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. All those attributes are his essence, that they're woven together. In fact, what you, to state it in a positive way, God is identical with his attributes. In other words, all of God's attributes are who God is. And what I mean by that is, the, I mean, notice it says, without body, parts, or passions. My problem is, I would, I, when I read that in the confession, I would hear it without body and body parts but he's not talking about body. they're not talking about body parts they're talking about his attributes are not parts his attributes are aspects of who he is and here's what I mean the, the, the language of the Bible think about what the Bible says the Bible never says that God has life it says he is life right it, I mean, the Bible doesn't say that God has light it says that he is light we know Jesus is God because he is the light of the world. It's not that he has light. He is. It doesn't say that he, God has love. God doesn't have love for you. God is love. And that's how he is and, and how he operates. It's not that he has truth, but he is truth. It's, it's not that he has holiness. God is what? Holy, 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 Right? And the, the point of simplicity is that God, God is all of these attributes infinitely and all the time, eternally, and simultaneously. So his love, that he, he is love, and he's always love, and he's eternally and infinitely love, but he's, he's, his love is always holy. And his love is always just. And so you take all the attributes and you connect them with another attribute and they all, they all describe each other. So one way of thinking about it is he's never more or less any of the attributes. I mentioned uh, Irenaeus before uh, that in the second century, he described God as all thought, all perception, all eye or all seeing, all hearing, the one fountain of all good things. In other words, you can't say God is mostly one attribute. Like in today, people like to say, well, God is mostly love. Well, no, he's, he's 100% love and he's 100% holy. He's 100% just. And those aren't over and against. They're, you can never set the attributes against one another. They're always, always all present all the time, simultaneously. If he's not made of parts, it means he's indivisible. Okay, he can't, much, much more so than the United States, even though we say it on our, with our pledge. You know, in the medieval times, for example, they used to, 
ponder this conundrum they thought they'd come up with that, you know, something good because God wills it, that God determines he wants it to happen, or does he will it because it's good? And uh, theologian Catherine Rogers points out that this doctrine of divine simplicity, thinking of God being simple, it, it shows that, that God neither, he doesn't obey the moral order as if it were outside of him, nor does he invent it. He is goodness itself. And all else that is good is good in imitation of who God is. In other words, God doesn't bow to some external norm. It's not that there's good that stands outside of him that he tries to match up with. God's not trying to keep up with good or to do good because good is the right thing to do. Good is who he is. And so that's all he can do. And that's all that can, can emanate from him and, and go through. So so when you encounter, and what it means is things are good because God wills them. Think about it. Implication. Anytime you encounter any good in this world, any good from anybody, any direction, and as bad as people are, as much as we may disagree with people, every single human on this earth puts forth some good. That good is good because it reflects, it mirrors something in God. So God is being put on display. We have reasons to be literally praising God for his goodness all day long. Now, why, why does it matter that he's simple? Uh, one, one writer, theologian says, God is not only loving, but he is the love by which he loves. He's not only powerful, but he's the power by which he's powerful. He's not only wise, but he's the wisdom by which he's wise. He's not only good, but probably figure this one out, the goodness by which he is good. He says, God is the original and the source of all these virtues and doesn't possess them by dependence on another. So here's what it means. If, because he is infinitely and eternally wisdom, and therefore all that he does is wise. There's nothing God does that isn't wise. You don't have to pray, God, be wise in doing this. Pray, God, in your wisdom, which is all that he has to work with, I trust you. Well, what it means is you can bank on the fact that all that God does is what? Wise. Everything. No exceptions. That's comforting. It can be confusing. But, it, but it's comforting. He will always do right because he's wise. He, he can't do otherwise. Because he's infinitely and eternally goodness, you can bank on him doing what he's doing in your world out of his goodness. It's a manifestation out of his goodness. Now, again, that could be as confusing as it can be comforting sometimes. But you not only can, you have to bank on the fact that God is being good and he's being wise because he's infinitely, eternally loved. Everything emanating from him is love. Everything. Because he's infinitely and eternally holy. And he's just. He never changes his posture re regarding his hatred of sin. And of course, that creates attention. How this eternally, unceasingly holy and just God, you know, accepts you and me who are relentlessly apathetic towards him. Sometimes even resentful because, you know, I want to be God. I want to be my own God. And remember we read the quote, or I read you a quote. I can't remember if I put it up there or not. Of 
that we, we, want, we want to be king and we want God to be there as an advisor to us as opposed to being God, being, being Lord. So when we're wanting to be gods and our, our thoughts and our behaviors just get us in deeper waters, how do, how do we deal with the fact that his justice and his holiness are infinite and are eternal? They, they, they never, you know, he doesn't blink. They, they never eclipse. Well, of course, that's what he, he, he maintained that, but he also maintained his infinite and eternal love and mercy, you know, in the cross. I mean, that's where he sent his substitute. He sent his son, Jesus, who, of course, lived the life of perfect love and reflecting who God is, obedience. And he, that you and I must have on our record to stand before God. Any being, he's, he's got to be godly. He's got to be holy. God dwells in holiness. He can't dwell in, in the midst of sin. Jesus lived that life that we ought to live. And then he, he of course, died the death of, of, of judgment under God's wrath for our records as unholy beings. I mean, what it is to be ungodly is that we're not acting like God. Well, we have little blips. We're sort of like God. We resemble God. We've been made in the image of God, but you know, by and large, our, our, our lives are just filled with ungodliness. And so it brings this guilty wage that's been earned. And Jesus, of course, at the cross, he received God's justice for his holiness towards unholy beings in our place, the one, the one that we ought to be getting. And so God, in his gift, in his love, in his grace, he gave to his children this exchange of Christ's record imputed to us and then put our record on him and Jesus received what we deserve. And so we, that, that, that's, what, that's what lifts us up. One of the things, it may sound like we're just being real heady and, and ivory tower to talk about these transcendent attributes of God, but when you think about God as infinite in his justice and that that's all woven together, it makes grace deep and rich and powerful and compelling because apart from God's grace, apart from God's mercy, apart from what he's done through Jesus, we're toast, right? We don't, we don't, we don't stand a chance. And so when he sends your, his spirit this week to poke your heart, maybe even to pierce your heart, to make you aware of your sin and, and your rebellion and your self-centered, God-forgetting ways, it's because he's working to make you godly He's wanting to take what he has done by applying Jesus' record to you and to start to need that into your life. And he wants to remind you how much you need him, that we are dependent. He wants us crying out all week long and say, God, I'm, you know, once again, forgive me for being so unlike you and keep plugging away at making me like you. And the good news is, he who has begun a good work in you, what, will carry it through to completion. Now, you may think, okay, well, if God is simple, how, you know, how do you, what about the Trinity? How do you, you know, well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one essence, okay? They're not three parts. They're, there's distinctions between them, but they're not separate. For example, you know, when the Muslims hear about the Trinity, their, their first thought is, well, you have three gods. It must mean three gods. But God has, has revealed 
himself that he is indivisible. He's one guy. I mean, that's the Shema. I mean, from the very beginning, he said, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one God, one God. And that hasn't changed. He's still one God. Or, or you might, the opposite heresy is what we call modalism, uh, which where you think, okay, where you say, well, God is not three separate parts. He's three modes. You know, like water can be steam or liquid or ice. Well, that's, that represents a heresy. Unfortunately, all analogies we try to use, illustrations, end up teaching a heresy because there's nothing that the Trinity is unique. So just so you know, that's the heresy that that, that, that one represents. And the, because they're not separate persons. I mean, the, it's not different masks for different tasks according to who God is. He just wears something different. There's three distinct persons, and yet they're all one. I mean, again, it's hard. It's kind of it's one of these just blowing our mind deals. That's why Jesus... In John 14, he said, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So he says, he, he was telling them, the Father and I are one. We're, we're separate. It's not just that we're on the same page. He says a little bit later, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then listen to what he says. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And yet, before he finishes talking that night, he also talks about how the Father will send the Spirit, the Counselor, to come be with us. And then he says, I will send the Spirit. And the point is, the Father and the Son make their home in us by the Spirit. And the Son sends the Spirit, and the Father sends the Spirit. They're all one. They're, they're distinct, but they're one. And they're, they're one substance. And that's why Jesus, again, in that same section in John, says, you know, what I tell, what the words you hear from me are just my father's words. And it's not just that he heard them from his father. They're, they're one, and yet they're distinct. It's, it's hard to get our minds around. But the, the point is, he's still simple, even as the Trinity. Well, let me slide over. So that's what it is that he's simple. If, if you're, you may have picked up on it because he's simple, that means he's got to be unchangeable. Right? If you have the, part, the whole point of the parts is you can't change out the parts. And, and none of them can be uh, diminished. Before I, I start, I mean, you can, you can pretty much wrap your head around uh, what immutable, unchangeable means. But I want, I want to kind of start more with application about unchangeable. The meditation inside the front page of your bulletin, I quoted from the, the book I keep telling you about is None Greater uh, by Matthew Barrett. And this is actually something he says. He, and he's talking about the rock. You know, David, over and over again, David refers to God as his rock. It's in the Psalms over and over and over again. And it's because he knew what it was like to be protected by literal rocks, right? He was running around and he was hiding in the rocks and he was grabbing hold of rocks. And Barrett says, the imagery of a rock conveys many things. But the most vivid of all is its immutable nature. Wars may come and go, countries rise and fall, and all the world changes from one century to the next. But not the rock. It's not, not no, I got some geologists here who say, well, there's change. But, you know, it's what's behind it. Okay. Uh, that's why it's, it's an analogy. <laughs> it's not thwarted. It does not vacillate. 
It's the same yesterday, today, and forever in but a small way. Okay, there's a small way. The rock is like God. He does not change. Come what may, this God remains the same. He's firm and secure, always there, never fluctuating, incapable of defeat, and forever steadfast as a fortress to those who are in trouble. This imagery of the rock is, what's behind that is that God doesn't change. I mean, the, the first song we sang, the, the, it's called The Solid Rock. You know, my hope is built on nothing less. That stands his hope, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. Even when you're under a flood, what do you do? Grab hold of the rock so the flood won't wash you away. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. The application of God being immutable, unchangeable, is that you can count on it. Have you been unjustly treated or abused in some kind of way? The, God is just, and God is infinitely just. And he is eternally just, and he will bring justice. I mean, one of my favorite passages is Romans 12, where, where Paul says, you don't take vengeance. The Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is just. You belong to him. He's got your back. You may not see it, but he will bring justice. You know, human judges shift. I mean, both political parties know which appellate courts to go to when they want to get an opinion going their direction, right? Not that it even always works out perfectly, but, you know, I mean, our, our, our justice system it is, moves. You know, if, if a if a judge shifts, either they're being corrupt or they're being negligent, human justice is not always equal, but God's is. Is. It's eternal. It's infinite. It's not going anywhere. Some of you may have watched a football game Monday night between the Packers and the Lions. And there was one of the things that came out of it. It's been a big hubbub all week, and, the, and the, a, couple of, a couple of players commented on it, got fined, is uh, just some of the refereeing. Well, referees are judges. And there were, especially towards the latter part of the game, there, there were several calls that were made that were clearly, and the announcers kept showing, you know, showing and talking about how they were wrong. And they happened during that section of the game to be all against the, the Lions, who ended up losing by one point. Uh, and so somebody aptly airbrushed, uh, had a picture where they airbrushed the referee doing the Lam uh, Lambeau leap into the stands. But the, we... We need a God whose justice never changes, that, that we can count on him. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, his first published sermon, the title of it was The Immutability of God. And he based it on Malachi chapter 3, the last book of the Old Testament, where God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Because God was talking about how Israel was being unfaithful, 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 unfaithful. And there was going to be judgment coming from it, but he also says, guess what? I'm not going to utterly abandon you, though, because I've made promises to you, and I've made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I don't change. See, that God's word does never changes. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, Samuel speaking to Saul after Saul finally capitulates and hopes that God won't tear the kingdom out of his hand. 
And Samuel tells Saul, he says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Okay. His word never changes. You can bank on his promises. We change, right? We waver. But God is always perfect. What, what a verse, for some reason, the Lord did. I, I remember reading it early on as a believer and just always clung to it. He says, if we are faithless, and we are, right, all the time, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He can't do otherwise than be faithful. He can bank on it. Yeah, his, his mercy is perfectly guided by his infinite wisdom as far as his timing and his application in your life. So when the thoughts start shooting through your mind, you know, where you feel like God's dropping the ball, or maybe he's, he's losing sight of your predicament, he's preoccupied with something that's going on in Syria, uh, and, or he's turning on you. I mean, th th those are accusations, right? The, who might be planting accusations in your mind? Who, who's, who's the accuser? Now, I'm not saying you're satanic for those things that go through your mind, but there's all sorts of things that go through your head that aren't really yours. Okay? They didn't originate with you. And they're not, those in particular aren't accusing you, they're accusing who? They're accusing God. And, and what, what, I mean, the, the devil can't make you do anything. He just loves to coach us about how to interpret things. And he's, if he loves to coach us to accuse God, because if, if you can't trust God then you're going to trust what? Yourself. The next best thing. I mean, you're the closest thing to God, right? That's what we do. The worst thing I can do is, is to, to loosen my grip of holding on to God. And so that's what the devil wants us to do. He wants, me, he wants us to, that's what he did to Eve. He, want, he wanted her to start accusing God. He said, you mean God won't let you have any of those trees? He wanted her to start thinking God was just cutting them out. Remember, God just said, you can have, he, God said you can have all the trees except one. But the devil did just like, you know, happens with your kids. You mean, I can't have any of those things? No, you can have lots of things. He, he, he wants to get us accusing. The good thing is God never, never changes in his omnipotence. You know, he's not like Samson who can get his hair cut short, okay? He doesn't have an Achilles heel. There's no kryptonite for God. Creatures have kryptonite. God doesn't. He can never decrease his power. Jay, you may remember uh, this summer in James 1. He said, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and what does it say? With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. No variation, no shadow due to change. So, so you know, maybe you're praying for a loved one to for their salvation, for them to know Christ. You've been doing it for years. Or you've made some, or somebody you know has made some horrific life decision, and you've just been praying about it and praying for, for recovery from it, or maybe just have some debilitating life or health situation. And you feel like you're praying. And you just feel like your, your prayers are hitting the ceiling. The, the longer you have to wait, when we wait on God, we've got that time between the promise and the fulfillment. And in between is waiting. 
And the longer that wait goes on, we just have to hold more and more tightly and keep running back to this truth about God. I'm waiting, but he doesn't change. I mean, what did James say? James said, shadows change. In our family room, we get up, uh, get up in the morning. A lot of times it's dark, but as, as, it, as the light starts coming in, the, the, back, the windows in the back to the porch face uh, kind of southwest, and it's great because we get this wonderful light in the morning. And it's great during the summer because there's shadow back there so we can sit out on the porch and it's not nearly as hot because the sun's on the other side. But first thing in the morning, when the sun's in that, in that low stage, it's always coming in the window. So I always have to jockey around to either get between, you know, the, bar, the, the panel between the windows and the doors uh, that are in the doors. And, um, and, and you wait for the, 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 well, the light to shift, but really you're waiting for the shadows to shift. Because why? Shadows shift. You know why James said God doesn't change like the shadows? Because shadows have always changed. Shadows were changing back then. If there's one thing they knew, shadows will change. I mean, day by day, I can sit at the same time and the sun's not com- coming in the same place, right? Why? Because shadows change. He said shadows change because God has no variation. Because change is a limitation, right? Change introduces something new into who you are. And, and that would mean that before you must not have been perfect. The Mormons believe that God changes. Okay, if, you, if you ask a Mormon, do you believe Jesus is God? They'll say, yeah. But try sometimes. You ask them if they really know their stuff, what they really believe. Say, well, do you believe Abraham's a God? And they'll say yes. Do you believe Moses is a God? And they'll say yes. That's why they can say Jesus is a God. Because they believe that if, if, if you're righteous, you will become God. But they believe that by the time you become God, he's, he's moved a little farther down the road. So you never actually catch up to where God is because he keeps improving. But the point is you can't get more perfect. God, because what that says is you were not perfect before. If you change for the worse, then obviously you're no longer perfect. Okay, God doesn't have potential. Okay, he has zero potential because potential assumes there's something I can be. It's, it's a state of fulfillment I haven't arrived at yet. And that would mean God is currently imperfect. God is, and saying that God's unchangeable, some people in our day and age have reflected on this doctrine of immutability, and they say, well, that just makes God this stagnant, dull dud because he, doesn't, he never changes. You know, there's plenty of people in your life you'd love to see him change. Then when will they ever change? Think that's not a good thing? But again, from the very beginning, the, the early theologians would they said God is pure act. Okay, God's not stuck in the mud. He's never passive. He can't be passive. Because to be passive means that you, think you have to be acted upon. He's never not activated. He's utterly fulfilled and he's always on the ball, if you will. He's perpetual motion. He's the definition of activity and motion, always at work, uh, even as he rests, which is an amazing thing. So as you go into this week, I just want to encourage you to be thinking about and reminding yourselves and, and, and just pumping up the volume in, in, your, in your thoughts that, that God is not going to change. And, and then tying together these different attributes. You know, pull out that first paragraph of the second chapter of the Confession. You can Google it. Uh, remember, you get all knowledge through Googling, except you can't get be incomprehensible knowledge. 
Okay, but you can, you can Google the Westminster Confession of Faith. But chapter 2, paragraph 1. And just all those things that talks about God, and they're all true all the time, simultaneously, and they work off each other. And it will it'll bulk up your prayer life. It'll help you when you're, when you're sagging and feeling like you don't feel God's presence. But you can say, this is true. He is always present. So let's pray and ask him to help and reinforce these things in our hearts. Father, we thank you that even though our, our thoughts of you waver, they're just like shadows. They come and they go. We forget. Uh, our, our, our memories are, are, are spotty. We think we remember things. We think we know things. And then we expo- we're, you, you expose us that we're not remembering quite as clearly or uh, sharply as we thought we did. We thank you that you never change. We thank you, Father, knowing the way we are the way we are. You, don't, you have not changed in your posture of love towards us. That if you, you sent your son Jesus, and if we have put our faith in him, if we have received him as our savior, your, your love, you're never going to love us any more than you do today, and you're never going to love us any less. It's full-on love, full-on movement in working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your name. So have us, work in us, remind us, send off little flares in our minds this week about these truths, that we'd embrace them, and that would give, give us believing hearts uh, so that you'd be glorified and we'd be comforted and we'd be bold. And, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.